You know, it's always dangerous when you make a proclamation. Last, last Sunday at the beginning of the sermon, I said, I'm, I'm officially declaring it's now pollen season, um, which is true. I mean, we had pollen on our cars th- this week. This morning, I woke up, my weather app said flurries. So I, don't, I, don't, I didn't see those flurries. I don't know if any of you did, but I don't, I don't think it's going to happen. But, you know, welcome to springtime in Virginia, right? I mean, we're just kind of making that transition. Just wait a few hours and the weather will change. Hey, there's something that we did a few months ago. We uh, had baby bottles and we let people take those home and they put change in that for the Pregnancy Resource Center of Metro Richmond. And that was a while ago, but we just got back the count from them, what, what we raised to that. So just with, with change, pocket change, that people uh, filled up those bottles with, and when we turned those in, we raised uh, for just, just us. I mean, they raised more, more than this, but we raised $1,561.32. So, yeah. Um, you know, it, it only takes a little bit of change to make a change. And so, is that, oh man, I, I could feel the groan. I could feel the pain from that. That's all right. I'm a dad, so I get to, I get to make puns. And so it's good times. We appreciate you taking the time to commit to, commit to that. Uh, it was good stuff. Hey, last week we started this sermon series, Between Two Trees, and we're talking about life lived in the transition between the tree of the knowledge of good and evil right there in the beginning where that broke the world. You know, we invited sin into the world when we ate of the fruit of that before we were supposed to. And then all the way at the end in Revelation, so that's Genesis chapter 1 through 3, really. Chapter 3 is, is when the, the problems really take, start to take shape. And then Revelation chapter 22, the very last chapter of the Bible, we have the tree of life that we get to look forward to. And so we talked about how that incident, it didn't just separate us from God. That wasn't the only problem. It also united us with death. And so it has changed our entire conception of how we view the world, our thoughts, our emotions, our heart, soul, and mind, and how that impacts us in our life. Maybe, is, is, maybe we just don't realize how, how, much, how much it impacts that. And so we talked about how the incarnation of Jesus kind of identified what the problem and solution is. Jesus comes fully God and fully man. He lives life as it was meant to, meant to be lived. And coming along to that, he brought about the resurrection and now becomes a living sacrifice as a result for that, uh, for that separation from God so that we could be reunited with him. And so as followers of Jesus, we have the hope of heaven, uh, of the more that God created us for to enjoy with him from the beginning that our sin causes us to miss out on. And we talked about how transformation is part of what happens when we follow Jesus as disciples. But sometimes that transformation doesn't, doesn't really happen the way that we expect, and we don't participate it maybe in the way that we feel like we should. And there's some, there's some reasons for that. Um, you know, the hope of heaven that we have isn't just a future thing that we look forward to, but it's also meant to be a present reality that we participate in. But that transformation, um, that problem from that present reality is that we're often more familiar with death than we are with life. That, that's the problem with us being not just separated with God, but united with death because of sin. Is because we get more familiar with the habits and the language of death than sometimes we do with life. And that's why transformation, that's why the change that Jesus brings, that's why the gift of the Holy Spirit is so important as disciples, disciples of Jesus. Um, this is why knowing, living what the Word teaches us is so much more important than just simply believing. 
Believing doesn't quite get us to the transformation that God wants for us. It's no different than how we learn or engage with anything else in life. I've got some really fond memories of getting my kids to jump to me in the pool. So if you, if you remember that as a child when you, when you did that the very first time, I know, some of you are like gung-ho, who cares? You know, I'm going to jump in the deep end. It's going to be fine. I'll figure it out when I get there. Um, my kids were, had varying degrees of reactions to that. Some of them were like, they're ready to go. Um, I, I could tell some stories. On, I'm not going to. I, sometimes they're like, Dad, come on, man. I didn't give you permission for that. So I'm not going to tell you too many stories about that. But I just remember there being there on the side of the pool and ready, arms, arms stretched out and saying, go ahead and jump. I'll catch you. I, I will. I promise I'll catch you. And they had, to, they had to deal with some of the nerves of whether or not they were going to jump. Now, all of them did eventually because we had already established trust, trustworthiness up until that point. Um, but, you know, they had to overcome that nervousness and that lack of belief. I mean, I think intellectually they were thinking, as intellectually as they were at the time, they were thinking, yeah, I, th- I think dad, dad, dad will catch me. But they didn't really believe that it would until they jumped. You see what I'm saying? Like that, that, that belief didn't actually happen until they did something with that. But the older that we get, the more familiar we get with the systems and language of unbelief and entrenched in the habits and traditions of life without God. And so many people all of us really, at some point in our lives, move from being childlike and wonder and curiosity and moving through nervousness to trust and hope to learn new things and experience life. We, we, we kind of lose that as we go because of the negative experiences that we have and the things that happen in our life that kind of take, take that away from us. And we almost become zombie-like, where we kind of just get stuck in old habits and old systems and old ways of thinking. And we just kind of go along with life as everybody else is. We just kind of uh, mindlessly and aimlessly move through life devouring and being devoured along the way, revved up into a frenzy over, you know, being overstimulated. And while claiming personalized, unique identities and tribes, we really just look and act like everyone else. And that's what it looks like to be broken by sin and united with death. Is, is we just kind of lose sight of what it looks like to actually live life. It's why the way of living that Jesus teaches is so countercultural, particularly as you read through something like the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, and why the parables are often so sharp and direct, because the way of life looks and sounds different than the way of death. That's why Jesus so often called out the religious leaders of the day who were just missing the point of what it meant to look like and follow God. It gets into our personal lives, our mental well-being, our relationships, our parenting, our social and political ideals. And when this happens, we have more in common with, uh, with, with you know, walking around and, and not living life, walking around dead, than we do with living the purposeful and meaningful life for which we were created to share with God. So let me give you some examples of how we think, some of the, the habits, some of the things that we say and do that are more like death than they are like life. So when we're self-conscious, and our self-consciousness is always based on what other people think about us, and that's how we kind of live our life, that's, that's us being more familiar with the language of death and how death approaches things than how God thinks of us and how he wants us to think. Um, when we think that our worth is performance-based over who we are becoming in life, that's part of the language of death. When we think, I can handle this on my own, I don't really need any other people. When we think that freedom is the absence of constraint, um, as parents, sometimes we'll, we'll say things or think things like, I don't really, I don't want to force my child into something. You know, I want them to kind of, I want them to kind of develop this on their own. I don't want to, you know, sometimes parents will say, I don't want to force my kids to believe. Okay, I, I, like I understand that sentiment, 
But the, the problematic part comes with that is that if we don't engage or have expectations or teach or guide or anything like that, it just means somebody else is going to do that. Um, follow your heart. I mean, just, oh, doesn't that get you? That's, that's part of the language of death because our, our hearts, when they're broken by sin, like they don't, they don't always lead us to where we want to be. Um, when we say, I'm busy all the time, or I don't have time, our schedules are ruling us versus us ruling our schedules. Um, when we say things like, well, if this political party would be in power, then everything would be fine in life, those kinds of things. Um, if we could just get rid of those people, everything would be fine. All of those statements, all of those thought processes are driven by broken ideas, driven by broken systems and experiences that do not reflect wisdom from God. And therefore, sometimes we just, we just kind of parrot things that language and habits and ideas and ways of living that are more familiar with death than they are with the language and habits and living of life. You know, all you have to do is look in your fridge or pantry to prove this out. Um, I, I, not that this would ever happen in, in my household, but sometimes we just hold on to things way past their expiration date. Um, so, for, for example, just, just as hypothetical, just something I'm making off, up off the top of my head, um, you could just, you know, take out a jar of jalapenos in your, in your fridge and put it on some nachos that you're making for the family and then the kids start saying, hey, um, something tastes a little off. And then you, you taste one of the jalapenos and you realize that's got some nice funk to it. Um, I don't know. <laughs> it's not supposed to. And then you look at the date on the jar. And uh, it's, let's just say it's embarrassingly out of date. You know, sometimes that stuff happens. It doesn't, happen doesn't happen to us, but maybe it's happened to you. Um, sometimes that's why sin is so enticing sometimes because it's just more comfortable. Sometimes it's just comforting to know. We have a jar of jalapenos in the fridge. We might not have used it for a couple of years, but, you know, hey, you know, it's, it's there. Uh, it's because we're comfortable and familiar with it, and the normalcy of it or the momentary rush that we get from having it, it's just a facade for something that never lasts. And that's, that's us being familiar with the hang, language and habits of death. We've all seen it this way work before. It worked this way before. People will be more comfortable in a miserable situation than they are in the unknown of making the right choice for what's best versus what's easy because it's become natural to us. This applies across the board. I mean, some of us, some of us have seen people or, or even being, found ourselves being a part of, of relationships that we just should not be because we get, we're comfortable and it's normal. And sometimes it's abusive and you see this kind of stuff happen constantly where it's just because it's the known thing. And, and the, the nervousness of the unknown and getting out of that is, is, is too overwhelming because we just don't know what's going to happen with that. It applies to that. It applies to being honest with people. It applies to opening ourselves up to new friendships or making a change in routine that we know we need to make. Um, it, it applies to keeping ourselves obligated to a schedule that is overbearing and too hurried. It, I mean, it applies to being addicted to eating and drinking and dopamine hits from a screen to mask pain. We're abdicating responsibility that we know we, we have and need to take part in in our life. I mean, the list can continue to go on. It doesn't have to be this way. And God didn't create us to live life this way. But it will continue unless we exercise faith and trust and allow the light and life of Jesus to expose our union with death for what it is and look toward the full life that the light of Jesus is shining toward and meant for us to, to follow. 
So we're just going to use Mark chapter 5 this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, the first half of Mark chapter 5, to talk about what this looks like and talk about what we do about it in our lives, because there is a solution. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all, all three talk about this particular interaction. Mark talks about it a little bit different, different, differently, but we find an encounter with a demon-possessed man and Jesus and we, we see this interaction that happens here that draws into very sharp focus how the incarnation of Jesus brings about this transformation from this union of death that we have with sin. And how God, Jesus was already winning the battle over death leading up to the resurrection, which is the final nail in the coffin against death and sin. So let's read from Mark chapter 5 starting in verse 1. Jesus and the disciples went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he'd often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, "'What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God?' In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send him out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind. Pay attention to this conclusion that they come to. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Jesus and his disciples arrive in this Gentile uh, territory. And you could go there and you could visit some of the caves and tombs that, that are referenced here um, by Mark in, in chapter 5. And it very well, if you look at the timing before this, this is, this is right after Jesus has been in the boat, been in the, the lake with the disciples. A storm has come up and Jesus has calmed the storm. So this happens right after that. And you think about the setting here, that you get here, you've just got on shore, you've had this crazy interaction with Jesus, and, and it's, it's probably nighttime, and you get this person coming up and yelling at you. You think about how, how you would uh, react to this, as we read through Mark's, Mark's de- description, he's just kind of matter of fact, this is what happened. But you kind of put yourself in, your, in, in the disciples' shoes and Jesus' shoes, and how, how would you react to this, this person coming up and shouting at you and, uh, and this crazy interaction? I doubt any of us would have handled this situation very well. I mean, this is not a scenario I often think about, you know, preparing myself for. I don't, I don't know if you do. Maybe you do. I imagine the disciples were still in a somewhat of a state of shock after Jesus has calmed the storm in front of them. Um, we don't get any banter from them. You know, Peter's not like, oh, it's okay, Jesus, I'll take care of this, like he does in multiple other places. Um, they could handle keeping kids back away from Jesus, but, but not, 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 this, uh, not this demon-possessed man. 
And this exchange between Jesus and the collective of demons here, it may sound, this, this inter- interaction may sound really strange, but it fits right in, this whole story fits right in with this whole problem that we have with the language and systems of evil and death. Up to until this point, this evil that this man had been besieged by came from strength in numbers. And the people of town, they'd been trying to fight fire with fire. So they tried to chain him up. Can you, I mean, just imagine the scenario and the time frame and the interaction here that's, that's happened. They tried to chain him up. That didn't work. And finally, they were able to keep him separate from them by him living out in the tombs by himself. And who know, knows how long this had, this had been hap- happening. In their last-ditch effort, these, these impure spirits that, had, had, uh, that, were, that were a part of this man, their last-ditch effort to intimidate Jesus was to overwhelm them with their numbers. Not unlike a way that we think often. That if we have enough numbers, if we've got enough power, if we've got enough behind us, then that, that, will, take, that will take care of things. You know, we'll talk about things like being on the right side of history and that moral superiority is determined by how many voices repeat the same thing, regardless of whether or not it's the truth grounded in any kind of reality. But Jesus, Jesus is the way, he's the life, the truth, and the life. And he's superior to the power of evil and death. And so the response is, the language of death is, hey, we've, we've got a lot of us here. I've got backup here. And so we're, we're good. What are you, you going to do, Jesus? And yet they recognize very quickly that, that Jesus is not going to take anything from them. Jesus is superior. He's, he's the one that's going to determine what's going to happen in this situation. And so many times we often get overwhelmed so much by evil that that's the thing that we focus in on. That's the thing that we're concerned about the most. What's going to happen, you know, what's the bad thing that's going to happen here in this situation versus what is the good that God can do despite what's happening here? And Jesus ends up, his interaction with him is, hey, you're not staying here. And they, they don't want to leave, but it just doesn't matter. That Jesus is going to make evil go away. And so since it wasn't time for the destruction of evil, which is to come when God makes all things right at the end of all things, Jesus permits them to move on to a herd of pigs, which they immediately destroy, because that's what evil does. The pig herders wake everyone they can, and this likely affects the livelihood of many. And, it, and I get it. Sometimes you might read the story and think, man, what, I can't believe Jesus just destroyed the livelihood of, of this entire town. Well, Jesus didn't do that. Evil did. Evil is destructive power. Evil is the one that creates the problems, not God, not, not Jesus. But the emotion that grips them when they come to confront Jesus, these people come to confront him, and they see this formerly demon-possessed man whose violent strength and yelling and cutting had been a presence that they had gotten comfortable ignoring. They couldn't ignore anymore because now he's healed. Something different had happened here. He was sitting with clothes on in his right mind, and they were afraid of this. This is what struck fear in their hearts. And so I want you to think about what it looks like when our lives are united with death and how we get so familiar with the language and habits and systems of evil and death, being used to those things, being comfortable with those. They were more comfortable with his previous state of death than the transformed new life that he had now possessed. Based on their reaction, this was was something that they couldn't have believed was even possible. But there was the evidence staring them in the face very calmly, where he once had no dignity at all, where he was socially isolated, he was violent to himself and others, was known for evil speech. He now demonstrated the transformational power Jesus has over darkness in our hearts and minds and souls. 
And his neighbors begged Jesus to leave as a result. When we talk about transformation, when we talk about Jesus, the light of Jesus being the way and the truth, and how sometimes our reaction to the way that God calls us to live and approach life and to think, to treat our neighbors, to care for one another, um, to uh, how we live under systems of power and authority, how we handle our jobs and our families and, and the, things, the things that we take part in. Um, maybe, maybe there are times in which we know the good that we ought to do, but we, we don't participate in it because we're just, we're just not sure what's going to happen as a result of that. We're more comfortable kind of being stuck in the rut than we'd really like to, to admit. That's why sin is so problematic in our lives. Um, his neighbors pleaded Jesus to leave as a result. And maybe if it seems like an irrational reaction, I, I agree with you. Jesus, you healed George? He was the guy who we could always feel superior to. Come on. Like, he was the guy that made us feel good about ourselves. Because George over there, you remember George over in the tombs. I'm not as bad as him. But if we're a little more introspective, we could probably find their shoes fit just fine. Transformation is inherently risky. Because it means something is destroyed along the way. You look at Jesus, you, you look at the pigs and you think, Jesus, you just caused a recession in this town. But, but Jesus didn't do that. Evil, evil was the one who destroyed. And that level of life change, man, if that can happen for George. George is not his real name, by the, by the way. Um, it just feels right. Um, what, is, what does that say about my own life? And what Jesus calls me to? And the things that I'm not willing to change or do anything differently? What, what does that say about how I treated George to begin with? And maybe there are things that I just don't want to give up because I'm afraid of what I m- might be admitting to if, if I did. The transformation Jesus brings, though, isn't just, isn't just destructive. Um, the transformation of Jesus removes evil from our life to renew our life to the new beginning that God desires to share with us. Sometimes we're more comfortable in our own bad situation and afraid of things, what things might be like if we try something new. If we would dare to hope that life might be better if we honor God more than we honor ourselves, we might find a new and eternal life that outshines the formerly comfortable sin that we put to death through the work of the Holy Spirit. In Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 24, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. And taking up our cross and following Jesus, I mean, that, that, could, that could be a very trepidatious, a trepidatious thing. But, you know, what we fear is both the problem and the solution. Who or what we fear is who or what we worship. The fear of the Lord, for example, Scripture says, is the beginning of wisdom because we have nothing to fear when we are with him. And yet the fear of anything else causes us to just be in a cycle of fear of all kinds of things. It makes me think of the line, which in the wardrobe, C.S. Lewis's book, there's this interaction between one of the kids, Susan, and Mr. Beaver. Okay, if you don't, if you don't know the story, it's great. You should read the book, watch the movie. And here's, here's the interaction. Uh, Susan, the kids, the four, four human kids, find out that Aslan is a lion. And Mr. Beaver says, he's, he's a lion. He's the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he, he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. 
Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. The transformative power of Jesus, when this town is confronted with it, they view it as dangerous. And Jesus isn't safe. He's not safe for what is wrong in our lives and what's wrong in our world. And as a community, if they had recognized what he's not safe toward, I think maybe they would have had a different reaction. But they decide that he wanted him to go, and Jesus isn't going to force himself on anybody. But before they're able to leave, Jesus and the disciples, the man that Jesus had healed begged to go with him, obviously grateful for what Jesus had done, maybe also nervous about trying to navigate a brand new life that's been transformed by Jesus among these people who are rejecting the life-changing good Jesus had so obviously done. He wants to go. And yet Jesus doesn't let him. He says, uh, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So instead of allowing him to come with him, Jesus says to the man, hey, start building community on the foundation of this transformation. Share this with other people. I mean, if you, if you have questions about, oh, how do I share, how do I share my faith? You know, how do I share this, this new life with other people? Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has mercy on you. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. Lose your old life, is what he says to this formerly demon-possessed man, and gain this resurrected soul, soul to now share the transformation of God and the mercy that it brings about. With this very simple gospel message approach, by the time we get to Mark chapter 8, Jesus is feeding 4,000 people in the region of the Decapolis. After this man had gone through 10 cities and shared the story that Jesus had, had caused to happen in his life. So, at the initial part, these people wanted to reject Jesus. And by the time Jesus comes back to this area, after this man had been sharing what Jesus had done in his life, thousands of people were gathering around to hear his, his, his teaching. Where once the language and normalcy of death was most familiar, the power and light of Jesus over darkness awakened people to their hunger for something more. Sin produces a limited understanding of what life can possibly be like. Life with God offers abundance where anything is possible and can be transformed by Jesus. And the best way to relearn or learn something new and, and move through the language of death into the language of life is to be immersed in it. I am not proficient in the languages that I've studied in my life. Some of you are multilingual, and I think that's, uh, that, that's amazing. Like People who are polyglots, or I just don't understand that. It's incredible. But the flip side of, of that is I also have not had to learn a new language. I, I have not had to live somewhere where most people don't speak the way that I speak. I might have a little bit of an accent when I go up north, but that's okay. Like We're, we're, we're good with that. Um, the best way, though, to learn a new language, some of you know this, is being immersed in it. If you want to learn Spanish, the best thing that you could go do is move somewhere where the only language that's spoken is Spanish. Because you're forced to engage in it. You're forced to change in your mind the way that your mind thinks even starts to shift into that, that thinking in that, in that new language. Um, one of the things that we know that we need in order to thrive and not just survive, but thrive in the new language of life that Jesus enables in our lives is to be with and in the culture of Jesus. And that means being in relationship with each other. We want to be immersed within a community of believers that welcome and seek after the narrow way of Jesus, the transformation of learning and sharing the language of life and life change into something different, something that we're created to be from, from the very beginning, a community of sharers of how Jesus has tr transformed their lives as individuals and as disciples together. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I encourage you to read the chapter on your own at some point this week. That would be a great takeaway. Read chapter 12 and read chapter 13 and look at how the church is meant to be that community of believers in which we learn and live out the language of life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I'll just read one verse, verse 27. Paul writes, now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. And each one of you is, is a vital, vital part of that community in which we learn together how to live the way of Jesus, which is life. You know, the Gerizim community rejected Jesus because they were afraid of what his transform, transformative power might do in their lives, what they might have to give up, what they might change. But they missed that he was transforming them from a walking death to a thriving life. They were holding on to what they could and limiting themselves. They were, they were making the resources that Jesus was offering scarce in their life. But, but in the economy of God, in the kingdom of God, he offers limitless grace and mercy, limitless change, limitless transformation. We're united with God at his best for us when we're united together as a community transformed by Jesus. And so when we look at this, when we think about how we've been changed by the life of Jesus and by the resurrection of Jesus, we're called to a community of believers, both for others and, and to participate in that community with others that changes our thinking, it changes our language and our habits. And then that's why it's so important we engage in a community of believers who can look at the transformation of Jesus and say, I want that too, rather than say, ah, I don't really want to change the things that I want to hold on to. That's why the faith that we are called into is not individualistic, but it's communal. It's meant to be shared with one another because that's how we begin to change and live the way of Jesus. Let's pray. God, um, help us to be, be more like um, the man who was radically changed versus the, the town of people who were normal and live life the way that everybody else expected it to be lived. Help us to recognize the, the way in which you have transformed our lives to, to no longer be united with sin and death, but uh, to be united, redeemed, renewed back to God. And, and how, what that looks like pra practically, that it's not just something that we believe, but it's something that we, we trust and we hope in and we live out among each other and among everyone else. Even if people, people don't understand it, and even if people reject that transformational change in our lives, we know that um, it, it has greater impact than, than anything else that we can participate in this life. God, help us to recognize the need for us to prioritize building community with one another, with other believers, so we can immerse ourselves in the way and life of Jesus and the truth of, of who he is and how we are meant to, meant to experience life with you. God, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.